Good morning, ECC family. My name is Greg Moore. This morning we are reading Acts chapter 15, 1 through 6. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, uh, the title of my message is Expansion, Controversy, and Resolution. And the passage that we read, only six verses in chapter 15, are just a small part of the story because there was a lot that preceded this before the episode called the Council of Jerusalem took place. I would suggest that in Acts chapters 10 through 15, there are huge turning points, epic moments in the history of the church. We talked about one last time, which was the martyrdom of, of Stephen. But beyond that, there were many more. There are always turning points in history right? Things that when we look back on it, we realize what a big deal they were. And now we just take it for granted. So for instance, think of the Copernican revolution. The notion that the earth is not the center of the universe. Imagine how dramatic that was and still is today, even though it's no longer a drama when people begin to realize that the sun didn't actually rise and set, that we were turning and the sun appeared because of our rotation, or that the earth itself was not flat, it was a sphere, and you'd never fall off of it. Or how about this? the thing called human flight. They had dreamed of it for thousands of years, but all of a sudden, we realized it was possible. And it transformed our world. In terms of air travel, in terms of speed, in terms of visualizing our earth. And then, of course, that same notion of flight turned into space flight and recently, we're getting images from Mars, an unmanned spacecraft that's exploring the red planet. And there's no Martians. Interesting things. 
But things we had formerly expected would be there, we no longer found. Or what about this? I don't ever bring it in with me, but ordinarily I would reach to my right pocket and I would pull out something that's not my hanky. It's my phone, the microchip. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. If you had told an even advanced thinker that by the time I was my age, I would have a computer in my pocket that was more powerful than any computer that existed. Nobody would have believed it. That changed our world forever. The episodes in Acts 10 through 15 changed Christianity forever. The first episode that was dramatic in that 10 through 15 chapter range is chapter 10. When Peter, a devout Jew, following God, is asleep and falls into a trance, and the Spirit of God communicates to him in a dream, a sheet that comes down, and inside that sheet that's coming down from heaven, there are animals that are technically unclean animals. And the voice says to him, Peter, get up and eat. And Peter says, why would I do that? I'm not going to eat unclean things. That's an abomination. And the voice being God said, Don't call unclean what I've called clean. Of course, the story extends because there's some messengers from Cornelius' house who are Gentile that are about ready to arrive downstairs, and Peter greets them and understands that the vision meant something other than just food. And he realized the gospel was open to the Gentiles as well. That was epic. Why was it so epic? Well, it's hard for us to understand. But for the disciples who had been through such upheaval with the teachings, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, they were still catching on. They still didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah for the world. They still thought in nationalistic terms that Jesus, Messiah, for the Jewish nation would restore the kingdom of God through the lineage of David on this earth, they didn't understand. Boom. It exploded. It blew Peter's mind. Then the next episode that was absolutely dramatic was this, the conversion of Paul, then called Saul to the Christian faith. This is the man who was being sent out by the Sanhedrin basically a Gestapo for the Sanhedrin, to imprison and even to kill people who were following Jesus. They were a cult, a Jewish cult that was running things into the ground, and the Sanhedrin gave him orders and authority to do these things. And he went after them and put them in prison. You may remember that he was there when Stephen was stoned. He was holding the coats and giving consent to what was happening a follower of the law. By the way, Paul, at this point in his life, knew the Bible better than all of us combined. Think about that. He knew it inside and out. And that man who knew it inside and out couldn't see what we consider 
to be obvious. While Paul is breathing out threats, he's on his donkey and he's smitten from his donkey by a light and a voice. Of course, it's God calling to a new direction. Um, Can I be so sort of blasphemous as to ask a question? If you were God, would you choose him to be your chief messenger? That's got to be what Ananias was thinking when God calls him and says, I want you to go and lay hands on Saul. And he says, are you kidding me? So you mean the guy who's killing us? God says, no, he's my chosen instrument for the Gentiles. Go, Ananias, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. I'm not sure God was assuring Ananias that Paul was going to get his dues by suffering. I think he was saying to Ananias, don't you worry. I've got him in my crosshairs. He's mine now. And when you follow me, it involves suffering. And he will suffer. You take the risk. Ananias goes and prays for Saul, and the scales fall off his eyes, and he becomes a Christ follower. You know what happens in that epic? Paul and Barnabas start going north. They leave Jerusalem, which is where they were from, and they start north. And they start sharing the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And people all over the northern section of Palestine start to come to Christ as Savior. And you know who they were? Gentiles. Not all of them. There were Jews. But Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. Dramatically. This was epic. It had never happened before. And this is what started the huge problem. From the conversion of Paul, now we have a shift of mission. The unlikely source, Paul the proclaimer, the unlikely audience, the Jews. I wonder how Paul experienced God's supernatural, unusual, surprising work in his life. I'd like to suggest three things. Paul's intent when he began his ministry was to go to his Jewish brothers and sisters. That's what he always did. He went to the synagogues and he argued that Jesus was the Messiah. And let's be honest about it. It didn't work very well. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, he was run out of town. He was stoned like Stephen and miraculously he did not die and he was whisked away and he continued to proclaim the gospel. He went to his Jewish brothers and sisters and he got in big trouble. So why does Paul change his strategy? Well, maybe one, just out of frustration. A wall. What's another reason Paul might have changed his strategy and began to preach to the Gentiles? Because he was having success. 
He didn't know it was coming. People were coming out of the woodwork who were Gentiles interested in this thing called Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Paul proclaimed it. And hundreds and thousands of them came to faith. And he's like, what is going on? This is tremendous success. So he's frustrated at one level. He's, a, he's in, excited about the success, the unexpected success. And third, I really should have put this first. The reason he changed his mission is because of sovereignty. God knew what he was doing all along. I don't mean to sound sacrilegious, but sometimes I think of God as the divine manipulator. He takes our plans and our purposes and he turns them in his direction. There is no way, there is no way that Paul's intent and plan was to spread the gospel to the Gentiles in the Roman Empire early in his ministry. That wasn't what he had carved out as a mission. It was by divine providence frustration, success, and the hand of God that the Gentiles come to faith. The episode that leads us up to this event is the success that Paul and Barnabas are experiencing is criticized by some insiders. People who are the chosen are jealous People who are the chosen are angry because they see people coming to faith and not following all the laws that they had followed. In effect, these folks said, this is our heritage, not theirs. We've been waiting for the Messiah all along. They haven't. We came into this thing following all the rules and we're following all the rules right now. And we are the righteous ones and they are not. I had never noticed this before. You could be light years ahead of me on this one. But as I was reading this passage this week, I had an aha moment. And I thought, this is Jesus's parable of the prodigal son in real history. Those who were righteous like the elder son who never left the farm, so to speak, see a prodigal come in from the outside. And that prodigal is celebrated because he's returned. And the elder brother is saying, no way, we've been doing it right and you're giving the blessing to him? That seems to be what was going on in the mind of a Jewish member of the synagogue when they saw the Gentiles coming in. And so they demanded that the Gentiles follow all the law of Moses. Again, those Jewish believers knew the scriptures better than we do. I just need to say that once again. They knew it inside and out. 
and their most treasured possession, which was the Torah, the Word of God, that they had memorized since childhood, that most treasured possession had been misunderstood by them. What they didn't see was Jeremiah chapter 4, where Jeremiah calling the people of Israel back to God during a really bad time in history says, I'm not interested in circumcision in the flesh. Of course you're circumcised on the eighth day. What I want to emphasize is circumcision of the heart. Do you see that it's more important to have your heart circumcised? The whole nature of the law is a symbol. It's not a reality in and of itself. And they had missed that. They thought it was a reality in and of itself, a method of achieving righteousness. And God is saying, no, I have opened up the floodgates of heaven called grace. What I want from you is your heart. So you have a big conflab, a big debate at Jerusalem. How does the debate roll out and how does the resolution come to pass? First, Peter gets up. And Peter, in effect, says, let me remind you of my story. And he tells them about Cornelius again. And he says to them, you have to embrace this idea. God makes no distinction between us and them. No distinction between us and them. You might not think that's a big deal, but that was revolutionary. Furthermore, he said, you know, I bet you every one of you who are here right now are inclined to believe that it was the Apostle Paul who gave us, in some way, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. If you think that, as I had for a long time, you're wrong. Before Paul had ever put pen to parchment, before he'd ever written one single letter to any of the churches, Peter, in a summary form, outlined in this passage, justification by grace through faith. He said, they are coming in the same way we come in, by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, end of sentence, period. There's no difference between them and us. Furthermore, he said, and this must have just really rocked them. He said, why are you putting a yoke on the Gentiles that even you and I can't handle? Nor could our forefathers. In other words, in spite of our best efforts, we can never live up to the law. Why are you requiring that they live up to the law when you, in fact, can't live up to the law and I have not been able to live up to the law? Does this whole thing sound like the book of Galatians to you? This is coming from Peter before Galatians was ever conceived of. Peter sits down and then Paul and Barnabas get up. 
The text says when Paul and Barnabas got up to tell their story, the place went silent. In other words, you could have heard a coin, coin drop. And Paul and Barnabas described what was God was doing among the Gentiles, the signs and the wonders that were happening all around them, the people who were coming faith, to faith and following Jesus, they were just amazed. I got to wonder, didn't at least some of them in that audience, when they heard that story, think to themselves, oh my, this, this actually sounds like the ministry of Jesus. Signs and wonders. People's eyes open. Coming to faith. Understanding what it means to be a Christ follower. They told the story and it, it created silence. And then the final part of the story is good old, fuddy-duddy, conservative James. Okay, so think of the most conservative person you know in the Christian community here or somewhere else. You got him? Okay. He was more conservative. James. James stood up. He didn't say so much in so many words, but we know they knew this about him. He say, you know, he says, you know I'm completely devoted to the law of Moses. In effect, though he didn't say it in so many words, you know I go to prayer, Jewish prayer, at the temple, just like everybody else does. What they also knew about James, he was called James the Just. Why? Because he was so humble and so righteous. The legend is that James spent so much time in prayer for the church at Jerusalem that he had huge calluses on his knees like a camel. We're not talking about carpet here, folks. Stone. He prayed so much, he had calloused knees. He was pious. He was conservative. He walked by the letter of the law. And he stood up and he said to them, let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles. Imagine somebody who is that fully devoted to the law saying, my friends, let's not make it hard for them. James, don't you think this is important? Hasn't your life been a story of devotion to the law of Moses? Yeah, but we shouldn't make it hard on the Gentiles. He used the prophecy of Isaiah 45 in his speech in which he reminded them that the whole point of this Messiah thing was that someday the Gentiles would hear. So then he said, And I suspect it was he that said it, but they all concurred. Let's do this. Let's just ask the Gentiles to abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols and from meat 
that is, animals that have been strangled and still have the blood in it. That was Jewish protocol. There's a good reason for it. James said, let's just ask the Gentiles to follow those two things along with abstaining from sexual immorality. There's one constant in that three. It's sexual immorality. That's never changed in terms of an admonition for Christ followers. But you know what has changed? Meat sacrificed to idols. Blood in your meat. If you don't remember, Paul had a big controversy that welled up in his ministry where Gentiles were going to the market and picking up meat that likely had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul said, come on, what difference does it make? It's all from God. But then Paul said, then Paul said, but if somebody sees me in the marketplace picking up that meat and it hurts their conscience, I'm not going to eat meat as long as I live. Kind of an extreme statement. Do you see both ends of it? Paul is saying, even that is a temporary standard. But I won't step over into my freedom if it actually offends and harms the gospel because the gospel is what I'm all about. I I think this is a fascinating episode in the life of the church. And there's multiple applications that could be made to the contemporary church. The overarching theme of an application, I would just summarize this way. The church then and the church now routinely misinterprets the very thing that's dearest to them, namely the Word of God. The Word of God might be inerrant, but we are not. We've been having a conversation about changing our name. And in one of the conversations, I made it clear that for me, I'm an evangelical. I'm an evangelical for life. And I believe in the authority of Scripture. But I'll tell you something. There's a bunch of times where I've stood on the authority of Scripture and been wrong, not because of Scripture, but because of me. Second, major application. No matter how devoted you are to following Jesus, you can have blind spots. You know why I know? Because you can't see them. You'll never see your blind spots unless something rocks you out of your world and helps you to see it differently. And that happened over and over again in the evolution of the church of Jesus Christ. In a more particular way for application, I have a series of questions, and the first one is this. 
what is the equivalent, the modern-day equivalent, of the disciples' nationalistic interpretation of Messiah? What is it? I won't give it to you. Ask yourself that question. Is it possible that you or I are at the same place on some other issue? Whether it relates to race or ethnicity or gender? Is it possible that that's the equivalent that's happening to us? I'm just asking you to ask the question. I'm also asking you to ask this question. How many times, just don't say a word. (laughs) How many times have you said inside your head or outside, well, those people are dot, dot, dot. When you talk about those people that are dot, 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 what are you talking about? What are you saying? What am I saying? Second question. Are we taking our most treasured gift from God? The scriptures, which are our ultimate guide and misinterpreting them. Is it possible that some of the greatest doctrines that we embrace can become an Achilles heel or misinterpreted to such an extent that it's impeding the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm just asking a question, friends. Third question, are we willing to compromise for the sake of the gospel? You know, compromise should not be a dirty word. Whether in politics or in the church, it shouldn't be a dirty word. Because we just had the penultimate expression of Christian compromise in Acts chapter 15. James compromised. Peter compromised. Paul and Barnabas compromised. They didn't give up the essentials of the gospel. They opened their worldview to understand new things. And even if they didn't change in their lifestyle, they'd allowed someone else to in order for the impediment of the gospel to not be them. Compromise is not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing when we destroy the foundation of the faith. Fourth question. Are we really open to listening to others? Are you open to listening to that person? Here I'm speaking to young people, okay? So give me your ear. You open to listening to people who are old and crotchety? And way more conservative than you? Do you think of them as fuddy-duddies? 
and behind the times? Are you willing to listen? Of course, you know where I'm going. I'll flip the coin. If you're old, are you willing to listen to the young? Are you willing to say, in spite of their age and their immaturity, they've got something to say that I need to listen to? Are you willing to listen that way? If you're a conservative, are you willing to listen to a liberal brother or sister in Christ? Or do you just shut them off? And the opposite. I know a few places, certainly no place I've ever been that has more diversity in it than ECC. And what I mean is diversity held together by unity in Christ. Are you willing to listen to others for the sake of the gospel? The last question is this. Are you willing to be surprised, blown away by the work of God that happens that you couldn't see coming? You know how exciting it is when God rolls back the curtain, the theater of divine grace, and explodes your paradigm so that you can see the activity of God? There's nothing more exciting than that. We've got the opportunity to enter into an incredible pure joy by watching the gospel explode and transform the culture But in order to be able to see that, we have to have listening ears and we have to be ready for God to do amazing things and to follow along. Honestly, I don't know what that means. I'm standing here and telling you, I don't have a clue. I do know this, that at the center of my reality is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I do know that at the center of my reality is the cross. And everything else flows from that. And I know that in the history of the church, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified is our North Star. And if we keep our eyes fixed on that, we'll be secure And the church of Christ will do what God wants it to do. We're going to sing an ancient old song that reminds us of our center. It's called the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, your continuing revelation to the church. I thank you that the canon of Scripture, while closed, does not mean that the revelation of God is closed. 
Because in surprising new ways, you open our hearts and minds to the essential of the faith. And things change. And you do remarkable things. We want to be fully committed, fully committed to the essentials of the gospel. But we want to be fully aware of the possibility of change. So give us eyes to see, minds to discern, and hearts to follow. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.